Section 18 of Roman History, The Early Empire by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9, Vespasian, A.D. 69-79, to 79, Part 2. When the successful general returned to Italy, it remained only to celebrate the triumph of the war, and the Jewish historian Josephus describes as an eyewitness the splendid pageant which was one magnificent beyond all parallel. The procession of the day began at the triumphal gate, through which for ages so many conquering armies had passed along in pomp. The rich spoil gathered from many a ransacked town, was followed by the long line of captives, the poor remains of the multitudes which had been carried off to furnish cruel sport for the citizens of Syrian towns. Then came the pictured shows that filled the kindling fancy with the memories of glory, strife, and carnage, the battle scenes, the besieging lines, the dread confusion of the storming armies, the sky all aglow with the blazing temple, and streams of blood flowing through the burning cities. With each scene passed a captive leader to give reality to what men saw. Then came the sight most piteous to Jewish eyes, the plunder of the holy place, the sacred vessels which profane hands had feared to touch before, the golden table of the showbread, the candlestick, which may be still seen portrayed with its seven branching lamps by those who passed beneath the arch of Titus. After these came the images of victory, and then the ruling powers of Rome, the father with the two sons, who were in their turn to succeed him. Hour after hour passed away as the procession moved in stately splendor through the streets. At last it wound along the sacred way which led up to the capital, and halted when the emperor stood at the door of the great temple of Jupiter. While he waited there, the chief prisoner Simon, the son of Gioris, was dragged off with a noose about his neck to the dark prison not many steps away. There was a silence of suspense while he was there buffeted and slain. Then the shout was raised that Rome's enemy was no more. The last sacrifices of the day were offered in the temple by Vespasian, and all was over. The war thus closed was a legacy of Nero's rule, for the present government was one of peace. Happily the new emperor was a man of different stamp from any of the Caesars who had gone before. There had been fearful waste of treasure, and the empire needed a good manager, who would husband its resources, and a quiet ruler who would soothe men's ruffled nerves. Vespasian was not a man of high ambition or heroic measures. Soldier as he was, he was glad to sheath the sword, but otherwise he carried to the palace the habits of earlier life. He was simple and homely in his tastes, affected no dignity, kept little state, and had no expensive pleasures. Much of the cruelty of previous monarchs grew out of their wanton waste, the imperial revenue was small, and their extravagance soon drained their coffers. To replenish them, they had recourse to rapine or judicial murder. Vespasian saw the need of strict economy. To maintain his legions and the civil service, to feed and amuse a population of proud paupers, and to make good the ravages of fire and sword, he needed a full treasury, and there could be little left to spend upon himself. 
but for himself he needed little. He loved his little house among the Sabine hills better than the palace of the Caesars, drank his wine with keener relish from his old grandmother's cup than from gold or silver goblets, disliked parade or etiquette, and could scarcely sit through the stately weariness of the triumphal show. He mocked at the flatterers who thought to please his vanity by making Hercules the founder of his race, and unwillingly at Alexandria submitted to test the virtue of his imperial hands on the blind who were brought to him to cure, as in later days monarchs used to touch for the king's evil. Stories soon passed from mouth to mouth to show how he disliked luxurious habits. A perfumed fop, we read, came to thank him for the promise of promotion, but saw the great man turn away, saying, I would rather that you smelled of garlic, and found his appointment cancelled after all. But as ruler he never seemed content. He said from the first that he must have a vast sum to carry on the government, and he showed no lack of energy in raising it. Even at Alexandria, the first city to salute him emperor, the people who looked for gratitude heard only of higher taxes in the place of bounty and vented their disgust in angry nicknames. Fresh tolls and taxes were imposed on every side by a financier who was indifferent to public talk or ridicule, and shrank from no source of income, however mean or unsavory the name might seem, if only it filled his coffers. Men remembered that his father had been tax-gatherer and usurer by turns, and they said the son took after him, when they saw their rulers stooping to unworthy traffic, selling his favors and immunities, bestowing honors on the highest bidder, and prostituting, as they fancied, the justice of his courts of law. It was said that he employed his mistress, kindness as a go-between in such degrading business, and that he allowed his fiscal agents to enrich themselves by greed and fraud, stepping in at last to take the spoil, and draining them like sponges dry. The wits of Rome, of course, amused themselves at his expense, and told their stories of his want of dignity. A servant one day asked him for a favor for one whom he called his brother. The emperor sent at once to call the suitor to him, made him pay him down the sum which he had promised to his friend at court, and then, when the servant came again to ask the favor, said in answer, Look out for another brother, for he whom you call yours is now mine. Another time a deputation came to tell him that a town had voted a costly statue in his honor. Set it up at once, he said, and holding out the hollow of his hand, here is the base all ready to receive it. There was indeed nothing royal in his talk or manners. He freely indulged in vulgar banter, and was never, it is said, in a gayer mood than when he had hit upon some sordid trick for raising money. Of such tales many perhaps were mere idle talk, the spleen of men who thought it hard to be called upon to pay their quota to the expenses of the state. The money was certainly well used, however it was gotten. Government was carried on with a strong though thrifty hand, and peace and order were everywhere secured. Liberal grants were made to cities in which fire and earthquake had made havoc. Senators were provided with means to support their rank, and old families saved from ruin by timely generosity. The fine arts and liberal studies were encouraged, public professorships were founded and endowed out of the emperor's privy purse. Nor were the amusements of the people overlooked, 
though his outlay on this score seemed mean and parsimonious as compared with the extravagance of Nero. It was the great merit of Vespasian that absolute power had no disturbing influence on his judgment or his temper. He had no suspicious fears, but let his doors stand open to all comers through the day, and dropped the earlier habit of the court of searching those who entered. He showed no jealousy of great men round him, and treated Mucianus with forbearance, though his patience was sorely tried by his haughty airs. He was in no haste to assert his dignity, and when Demetrius the Cynic kept his seat and vented some rude speech as he came near him, he only called him a snarling cur and passed on his way. In one case, indeed, he was persuaded to take harsher measures. Halvidius Priscus, the son-in-law of Thrasia Pitus, had from the first asserted in the most offensive forms his claims to republican equality. He spoke of his prince by name without a title or rank or honor. As praetor he ignored him in all official acts, and treated him when they met with almost cynical contempt. He was not content seemingly to be let alone, but aspired to be a martyr to his stoic dogmas. Vespasian was provoked at last to give the order for his death, recalling it indeed soon after, but only to be told that it was too late to save him, for Titus and his chief advisers felt the danger from the philosophic malcontents, saw how much of their policy of abstention had weakened the government of Nero, and were resolved that Helvidius should die, though at the cost of Vespasian's regret and self-reproach. There was also another scene, and one too of unusual pathos, in which he acted sternly. Julius Sabinus was a chieftain of the Lingones, who called his clan to arms for Gallic independence. The movement failed, the Sequani against whom he marched having defeated him. He heard that the Roman eagles were at hand, and in despair the would-be Caesar burnt his house over his head and hid himself in a dark cave in hope that men might think him dead. His wife Eponina believed he was no more, and gave way to such an agony of grief that he sent a trusty messenger to tell her all and bid her join him. For years she lived in the town by day among her unsuspecting friends, and in the hours of darkness with her husband. She began to hope that she might free them both from the weariness of this concealment if she could but go to Rome and win his pardon. She dared not leave him in his hiding-place alone, so she took him with her in disguise. But the long journey was a fruitless one. The boon was never granted. Sadly and wearily they made their way back to their hiding-place to carry on the old life of disguise and suspense. Then, to make her trial harder, she bore two children to her husband. She hid her state from every eye, hid her little ones even from her friends, suckled and reared them for some time in that dark cave with their father. At length the secret was discovered, and the whole family was carried off to hear their sentence from Vespasian's lips. In vain she asked for mercy, in vain she pleaded that the rash presumption of a moment had been atoned for by long years of lingering suspense, in vain she brought her little ones to lisp with their infant lips the cry for pity, till the emperor's heart was touched, and he was ready to relent. But Titus stood by and was seemingly unmoved. He urged that it would be a dangerous example to let any hope for mercy who had showed such high ambition, 
and that state policy required that they should die. Unable to save her husband, the noble-hearted woman bore him company in death and left the emperor's presence with defiance on her lips. Vespasian was soon to follow her. He had passed ten years of sovereignty and sixty-nine of life. His career as a ruler had been one of unremitting toil, and even when his powers began to fail, he would not give himself more rest. Physicians warned him that he must slacken work and change the order of his daily life, but an emperor, he said, should die upon his feet, and he was busy with the cares of office almost to the last. His jesting humor did not leave him even on his deathbed, and as the streams of life were ebbing, he thought of the divine honors given to the earlier Caesars and said, I feel that I am just going to be a god. Nor did the populace forget to jest in their sorrow at his death. When the funeral rites were going on, an actor was seen to personate the dead man by his dress and bearing, and to ask the undertaker how much the funeral cost. When a large sum was named, Give me the hundredth part of it, Vespasian was made to say, and fling my body into the Tiber. End of section 18